Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. Since the collapse of the Berlin Wall, there has been a widespread affirmation of economic ideologies that conceive the market as an autonomous sphere of human practice. In the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, this idea has been countered by calls for reforms of financial markets and for the consideration of moral values in economic practice. The book we're discussing today, Religion and the Morality of the Market intervenes in these debates by showing how neoliberal market practices engender new forms of religiosity and how religiosity shapes economic action. I'm pleased to welcome one of the volume's editors, Daramir Rudnitsky, to NBIR. He is Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Victoria. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to talking money. You're welcome. Uh, I'm thrilled that you're interested in the book, and I'm uh, really excited to be participating in the conversation. I mean, this book is just so timely in a number of ways, and obviously we will talk about that over the course of our discussion. But I did want to pull back a little bit first and ask you how the idea of this book and the conference that preceded it came about. That's a great question. Uh, To be honest, I actually wasn't too involved in the conference planning in the initial stages. Um, I had known my co-editor, Filippo Osella, because he expressed interest in my work uh, going back quite a few years, almost a decade now. Um, Some early work I did in Indonesia on what I called the spiritual economy, the emergence of a spiritual economy. Filippo was very interested in that project and in the work, and we connected, and, and he clued me into some of the things that he was working on in India and Sri Lanka. And I, I, we, we had a mutual interest in the articulation of religious transformations and economic change. And we kept in touch. And at some point, I guess it was about 2013, he was organizing a conference at uh, King's College with another scholar, a political scientist, Humera Iktidar. And they invited me to this conference and actually really had a great time. Um, it was There were a number of great papers, many of which have eventually made it into the volume. And Filippo and I just, we, we, although we had corresponded for many years via email and, and Skype and whatnot, we had never met in person. And we just, you know, we were spending, staying up late at night chatting and, and um, you know, going over these ideas and talking about, you know, all these different manifestations of religion, what he was finding in his fieldwork and what I would, what I had found in the fieldwork in Indonesia and and the new project that I had started in Malaysia by that time. And uh, the conference was two days. It was at King's College and it was really stimulating for me. I hadn't really uh, known about this global network of scholars that Filippo and Humera had put together who were working in this field, and, and I had a considerable amount of, uh, you know, conceptual, theoretical, methodological, uh, topical overlaps with. 
you know, there's you, you go to these conferences and there's there's the the kind of enthusiastic person who comments on everyone's paper. Well, and uh, I was just kind of the one who was the most loquacious, I guess. I was kind of commenting on everyone's paper and I'm just really stimulated and f- felt like I'd found a kind of intellectual community. And so we had a bunch of great conversations over the two days. It was in June and, you know, we were out late at night and we had some great dinners and then they talked at the end about putting a volume together and I was definitely interested. And then Humera got busy with some other things, some other projects she was working on. I think Filippo had initially thought he would be editing the volume with her and sort of out of the blue, I was actually heading off to do the main bulk of my fieldwork. I, I still remember when I got the email I was actually in the Hong Kong airport. I uh, checked my email, and uh, this email from, from Filippo came through and said, well, Humera can't participate in the volume, but I'm still really keen to get it out. Would you be interested in co-editing with me? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I love the conference. I love the workshop. I loved all the papers. So it seemed like an excellent fit. And we started to undertake this project. I think that was in, yeah, it was kind of mid to late, I guess it was late 2013, probably October about that time. And it was my first edited volume. I'd, I'd edited a, um, a journal before, a uh, special collection, but it was only four or five papers. This was a whole new undertaking. And it was really, uh, I, I couldn't believe how much work it was to, to put out a volume like this. <laughs> I, there were times at which I thought, you know, we're never going to get this thing out. I think some of these papers, we went around four or five drafts with some of the authors. And uh, yeah, eventually we got it We got it going and, and, and the whole thing came together. And, you know, four years, three years later, four years later, the, the book shows up in my mailbox. So um, that's kind of the short story. <laughs> you guys did amazingly well. I mean, the quality of the chapters is really, really high. But I also really like your description. Uh, the first book I wrote was about pilgrimage. And I feel like your description of this volume coming together sounds a little like the pilgrimage in reverse. You know, these moments of communitas and, and effervescence. And then, and then the hard journey that you undertook to, to get the volume out. Anyway, it, all the various iterations of these chapters, as I said, I think shows though in the quality of, of what you guys have produced. I did want to pull back even further, actually, and ask you a little bit about your own interests, um, how you personally came to study religion and economies. How did that subject capture your attention? Well, I think there were at least two uh, genealogies to that. I mean, and there are probably more that I'm unaware of. It had really nothing to do with any kind of personal experience or personal journey, I guess the first track was, um, well, I guess I should start maybe with fieldwork that I was doing initially for my dissertation, which I finished at uh, UC Berkeley in 2006. Uh, I, I, initially, I was always interested in development and the problem of development and questions of social change as they were being posed at that time in the, in the 90s and then ultimately globalization. Um, and then September 11th happened. Uh, and as I was going off to the field, I remember uh, the, the Bali bombing. I'm not sure you would remember this, but I was going off to do field work in Indonesia. The Bali bombing occurred. And all of a sudden, you know, the kind of question of Islam became foremost, in, you know, inescapable. You can go to Indonesia and study, uh, do anthropology, do any kind of field work and not engage with the problem of Islam. 
not engaged simply because Indonesia is the world's you know, contains the world's largest Muslim population. I think there are over 220 million Muslims in Indonesia. Uh, and it's not often recognized as such. It's often rec- not, not even thought of as, as a Muslim country or a majority Muslim country. But in fact, you know, it's this massive Muslim population. And they're really uh, interesting debates and, and, and religious practices that are going on. And, and you know, there's a long history of syncretic religious practice. So I, I became interested in the articulation of uh, Islam and development going back to, you know, the, the mid 2000s, early 2000s, and then continuing through a book that I published called Spiritual Economies, Islam, Globalization and the Afterlife of Development, which came out in 2010. So that was kind of one genealogy. But there's a deeper genealogy, which goes all the way back to my undergraduate years. Uh, and that was reading the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Uh, as a first-year undergraduate at the University of Chicago. And the book really blew me away because, you know, I couldn't deal with the, you know, I didn't, I couldn't evaluate the historical accuracy of Weber's argument or whether he got his facts right or he got his facts wrong or, or, or what have you. But what really impressed me about the argument that Weber makes in the Protestant ethic was how it intuitively made so much sense. That it made it, it explained capitalism in this robustly uh, cultural way, ethical way, uh, not resorting to any kind of you know meta narrative or anything, but just you know well, what are the practices that Protestants did, and what were the effects of those practices? You know, what kind of impact did they have in terms of the formation of specific types of subjectivities. And so, you know, the, the history that he traces of, you know, tracing it from first Luther, then Calvin, through the question of worldly asceticism, and then obviously the, the, the de-religifying or the, the demagification that takes place with the Enlightenment and figures like Benjamin Franklin uh, and then the kind of ultimate triumph of, of capitalism in, in the West, as we know it, this kind of hyper-rationalized system of economic organization in which everything is subjected to a calculus of cost-benefits. I mean, I, I didn't see it in those terms as necessarily as an undergrad, but the argument made so much sense and it was so compelling um, that it always stuck with me. And it was one of those texts, you know, that, well, you know, I... I sort of encountered as a first year undergraduate and it's always stuck with me as a, as a, as a formative and important text. And now I teach it basically every year in an economic uh, anthropology class that I teach um, on globalization and religion. So uh, I think those two things kind of coming together, one was the kind of empirical problem of field work and what it meant to study economic development in this, you know, massively majority Muslim country on the one hand, and this engagement with Weber that I had had going back to an undergrad, to my years as an undergraduate, um, really sort of came together. And then thinking it through the particular material, I know we're not talking about that, that earlier book, um, but uh, that sort of laid the groundwork then for coming to this project and realizing 
you know, there's something that are prevailing models of religion and capitalism or religion and globalization uh, that the current literature wasn't quite getting, wasn't quite grasping. Uh, and I think that is what really spawned my interest in participating in the project that Filippo and Humera had initially conceived. I'm really glad that you mentioned Weber, actually, because there is this great line in the introduction where you talk about Weber's ghost sort of haunting all these conversations, not just about Christianity, um, which is, of course, as you mentioned, Weber's subject, but also work that's been done about reformist Hinduism, reformist Islam, etc., is viewed through a similar kind of lens. Uh, but let's put Weber aside for a moment. And I did want to lay some groundwork for our listeners who might be less familiar with this theme in anthropology. So historically speaking, what are some of the ways that modern capitalism and religion have been explored by scholars? Well, one of the main ways that are, well, there, there were two things that kind of, that we found when we were doing the, the literature review and, and, and having these conversations. Uh, one was most work on religion in anthropology going yeah, even up to today, although I think it, it may be changing a little bit, seem to focus either on the psychological dimensions of religion or the political dimensions of religion. And I think there were important exceptions. I'm thinking in particular of work like, uh, you know, the Komarovs obviously work on the occult economies. Um, Tom Shordash wrote a book on or edited a book on religion and globalization that came out a around the same time as ours, a bit earlier. Uh, you know, there, were, there have been other people engaging with it, but, but the dominant conversation really seemed to be around religion and politics. And I think you see that today still in, in, uh, in the anthropology of Islam, um, but also in, in, in religion more broadly, or the kind of more psychological interest in religion and the, the kind of questions of personal experience and, and, and whatnot. And so one of the things that we saw was that there really, this conversation that, that did, as you say, have a long history in anthropology, um, seemed to have be on the back burner to, to a certain extent. And one of the things that we thought is that in putting this volume together, we really needed to think through this exchange between religion and globalization post-1989 um, you know, fall of the Berlin Wall, post-1998, the Asian financial crisis, and then, of course, post-2008, the global financial crisis. And one of the things that we saw that the dominant tendency in anthropological work seemed to suggest that, that the, the relationship between religion and capitalism was most often characterized in Marxian terms, in the sense that it was seen as, well, you know, religion is the cry of the oppressed. You know, religion is what the oppressed resort to when capitalism comes in or development comes in or globalization comes in and messes everything up or neoliberalism comes in and messes everything up. And people, you know, that, that's when they turn to the storefront churches. This is the kind of occult economies line that you get with the Komarovs, right? That, 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 that 
religion is really about mystification. And it's a really strong argument that pervades the social sciences that comes out of Marx and the idea of false consciousness and, and in religion as a kind of mystification. Uh, and I think Filippo and I, you know, we recognized that, I don't want to speak for him, but I think, you know, we, we recognized that there was some truth to that argument, but it also didn't capture the developments that we had seen in the field, nor that many of, the, of our interlocutors in the book were seeing in their field sites, in their field work. So I think the the question became, well, what other ways are there of looking at this articulation between religion and capitalism that doesn't see capitalism or and or religion as working through false consciousness and mystification, either you know the fetishized commodity fetishism or uh, you know, um, blinding people to the, the, the real relations to which the analyst, on, to which only the analyst has access, right? That the analyst is the one who kind of sees the error of both the economic system and the religious um, practices of the people with whom he or she is engaged in. And that puts the on- analyst in this odd position, as the one who sees through the veil and has access to some kind of truer truth. Um, And in that sense, the analyst oddly becomes like a messiah, you know, the one who has access to the truth that no one else can see. And I think what we were more interested in was something that was maybe more modest and more nuanced, but really sought to see how religious practices were mobilized to facilitate economic transformations uh, economic integration, but also to elicit actions and moral dispositions or ethical dispositions commensurate with the logic of the market. Uh, and so what we really sought to do then in the book is see how, you know, we might look at religion not in a kind of false consciousness way, but as a site of ethical formation, as a site of economic subjectification, if you will. Uh, a, a, a means through which certain types of working, consuming, producing, uh, exchanging subjects were formulated. And uh, not to necessarily say that there's some truth to, uh, objective truth about the economic situation in which any of our interlocutors were engaged or uh, truth to their religious um practices that we could see that they couldn't see, but that, you know, what, what were they actually trying to do in their everyday lives? What was the problems? What were the problems that they saw and how are they mobilizing the resources at hand? Be they, you know, ritual practices, be they, you know, uh, religious doctrines, uh, be they, uh, you know, institutions, whatever, in order to address the challenge, the, 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 the economic challenges that uh, accompany globalization. You turn to theorizations of assemblage to help fill in some of those gaps. What does that mean? And why did you find it helpful as a way to tie together some of the themes in the chapters? Yeah, we drew the work on, uh, or the concept of assemblages from 
Ong and Collier's work on global assemblages. And it really seemed to be a shorthand to pointing to how these kind of articulations or these kind of combinations were made in practice in empirical situations, but weren't overdetermined by some structural logic, right? That there's no necessary reason why the Malaysian government turned to Islamic finance at a certain moment in its history and sought to develop uh, the country's capital as the New York of the Muslim world. There's no, there's no necessary reason to that. That's an entirely contingent historical outcome of a long uh, colonial and post-colonial history. Um, but the, so the notion of assemblage seemed to capture both, on the one hand, the fact that, you know, the way in which the contemporary world works is often about various combinations of knowledge and practice, uh, but but not in any kind of determined or determinate way. So the outcome of, combi- of, of creating an Islamic financial uh, experiment in Kuala Lumpur is never overdetermined, right? Is never predetermined. And the outcome of what it will be is never determined. Um, and so that's kind of what the notion of assemblage uh, offered us, a way to talk about these empirical uh, convergences that we were identifying, uh, empirical conjunctures that we had identified on the one hand, uh, but in a way that wasn't guided by some teleolog- historical teleology. Uh, you know, th- there's no, there was no direction in which any of these transformations was going that we could see or that we wanted to proclaim, right? This wasn't you know, a culture of neoliberalism, a global culture of neoliberalism that's being formed. But these were specific conjunctures taking place in different locations at different times in different places uh, around the world. But they all seem to resonate with one another in different ways. Right. So you could have, um, you know, China Scherz's contribution to the volume discusses this Ugandan charity Mercy House in which these um, uh, nuns are basically trying to uh, figure out how to um, uh, compete in a funding environment in which they're being asked to uh, be increasingly neoliberal, to be more accountable, to be more self-financing, to be more entrepreneurial in their funding. And And the funders are asking them for this. And they, on the one hand, they sort of don't really know how to do it, but they also in in another sense, refuse it. They don't think that's what their mission is about. So there's something that's going on there that is also similar to, say, um, uh, you know, what Simon Coleman talks about, right? This this prosperity gospel and the productivity of capitalism and the way in which um, religion gives people a reason to wake up in the morning. (laughs) It's not just about deluding them into... Uh, you know, the opiate of the masses. It's not something that's just uh, tricking them into dealing with the world, but it's actually giving them a reason to act in the world. And so we wanted to kind of look at these, you know, this, 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 this way of looking at, at the articulation of religion and economic globalization on the one hand, but also um taking into consideration that the the outcomes were never predetermined, right? We don't know what's going to happen in India or in um, Uganda or in, um, 
uh, Indonesia or in China, right? That 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 the outcome of of these things are contingent and a subject to uh, the historical change of the agents who are creating the assemblages themselves. You mentioned Kuala Lumpur as the New York of the Muslim world. So I wanted to get back to that. Your chapter is about Kuala Lumpur um, and Islamic banking. Could you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, first of all, how have Muslims today and historically grappled with prescriptions against collecting interest? In other words, what is Islamic finance? Why does it come about? Sure. Um, that gets a bit more into my new project, which is a, a, another book I'm working on, my, my, my own work. Um, but I, I can talk to you a little bit about that. Well, so I'm thinking of your chapter in this volume, which maybe is forecasting what the what your book that you're working on now is um, is doing. But the chapter here, you talk about this idea of Islamic finance, which I think is mm-hmm. not going to be something that all of our listeners will have ever heard of, let alone be very familiar with. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what are these prescriptions uh, against collecting interest? How have they been understood? So why does Islamic finance come about? What is the kind of fraught categories there that that these bankers in Kuala Lumpur are dealing with? Sure. Yeah. So basically in the Quran, there are these injunctions against the collection of interest. And the, my interlocutors in the field would often say things like, oh, you know, collecting interest is 20 times or what was it, 40 times worse than, than committing adultery. So it has this very serious sin. And you read the Quran, it's the, the passages in which interest is, is discussed are very um, stern. You know, the warnings that are given about collecting interest are quite stern. So it's a very serious sin. And so... You know, historically, Muslims have often resorted to various types of financing contracts that don't entail the collection of interest. Uh, and initially, in the days of the early caliphates and uh, during the time of the prophet and shortly thereafter, these often involved various mechanisms of profit sharing, profit and loss sharing. So two uh, business people would get together, they would form a joint venture, and they would uh, share in the profits or losses of that venture. And so that was kind of one of the ways in which devout Muslims avoided interest and, and, and banking and whatnot uh, from way back in the early days of Islam. Of course, during the colonial period, many of, if not most of those kinds of institutions and those contracts fell out of use and Colonial economies became dominated by Western modes of banking that had developed, I guess, initially uh, in, you know, the the time of the Italian city states of Venice and Genoa and and, uh, Florence and so forth under the Medici and so forth. Uh, And so the, the, the banking that was practiced in, you know, 19th century Egypt or or early 20th century Indonesia or, you know, early 20th century Pakistan was all basically conventional banking and whatnot. If you wanted to open an account, you had or get a loan or whatever, you, you participated in this interest economy. Uh, starting in the 60s, when you get the kind of heyday of decolonization and post-colonial nationalism, you get the first inklings of efforts to resuscitate uh, Islamic banking 
that, or, or a form of banking that wouldn't resort to the collection of interest in in a number of places. So there was an early experiment, a, a bank in the 60s in Egypt called Mitgamer. Uh, then in the 70s, there were a few banks, the Faisal banks uh, in various places in the Middle East. Um, none of them succeeded or, or none of them today are really viewed to be very successful. Um, but in Malaysia, the prime minister, the kind of probably the, I, I don't know, greatest might not be quite the right word, but the the most influential prime minister in, in Malaysia's history so far has been uh, Mahathir Mohamed. And he became interested in, and spawned an interest in Islamic banking in the early 1980s. And I argue, not so much in this piece, but in other work, that uh, a, a recent essay that came out in, in American Anthropologist, um, I argue that part of that was part of a kind of Islamic identity that he was trying to build for a modern Islamic identity that he was trying to create for Malaysian citizens. Um, and the contracts that were used and really still are used for the most part in Malaysian Islamic banks were not these profit sharing models, but really resorted to various kinds of subterfuge might be too strong a word, but pretty close to subterfuge tricks uh, the, the Arabic word would be hiyal, uh, legal tricks or legal stratagems in order to evade the collection of interest. And primarily these would work through uh, two sales. You sell something at a discount to someone and then they sell it back to you on a deferred payment basis. So you get cash on the spot at a discount, but you have to pay them back in installments over time at a higher uh, price. And that was the way in which this interest prohibition had been avoided in these early Islamic banks in Malaysia. And today, that's predominantly still the case. Although one of the things that I'm extremely interested in, and I talk a little bit about this in the chapter, is the uh, way in which a, a critique of that kind of practice has emerged and the, the the substitutes the the substitute contracts that various types of experts are trying to uh, reformulate the Malaysian Islamic banking system around that basically involve not these multiple sales the, or the sale and buyback contracts but these pure uh, profit sharing contracts and whatnot and it's actually quite technical and quite complex I won't get into the details but one of the things that I'm fascinated by is the experimental nature of this project and the fact that it's still being worked out in real time, that there's that it's, it's a contingent project. It's related to Malaysia's colonial and post-colonial history and various types of affirmative action programs and whatnot, but it is not overdetermined by them. And so part of what I document in this chapter are the struggles over what this system is going to look like in the long term and whether you know, the the kind of soft Islamic banking system that relies on these dubious contracts or somewhat dubious contracts uh, will continue to be used or whether there'll be this shift uh, as many of the people that I, many of the, my interlocutors hoped toward a more pure uh, profit and loss sharing model that doesn't resort to, to interest. 
one of the themes in the chapter that is, I mean, it's a fundamental theme, but it's fascinating, is the way that you use Foucault to talk about our general understanding of market freedom and liberalism. And then you twin that with some of your interlocutors, for example, one uh, man who you name Hamza, who's a, uh, a banker in the, those massive Petronas Towers, um, who's also talking about liberalism, but he's talking about it in a very different kind of way. He's saying Islamic finance is the epitome of market liberalism. Can you walk us through that argument? Yeah, that was something that really surprised me. Basically, the way it works is uh, the argument is that um, conventional finance is actually not neoliberal. Uh, and it's not neoliberal because it's so reliant on the state and people like Hamza and, and some of the other interlocutors I worked with in KL, they would make these claims to me. They would say, well, look, you know, the conventional financial system is, is, is totally rigged and it's rigged in favor of the elites and the big firms uh, and the massive institutions and prima facie evidence of that is the global financial crisis. Because what happened when, you know, AIG and Citibank and all these big Bank of America, all these big firms were were threatened with going under because of their risky behavior? Well, the state and ultimately the taxpayers came in and bailed them out under the doctrine of too big to fail. And so their argument was that, well, in Islamic finance, when you have this profit and loss sharing, the risk is on the investor at all times. And so there is no too big to fail. If you fail, you lose and you go bankrupt and there's no one there to bail you out. So, for example, Hamza would say, well, in a pure Islamic uh, banking system, you wouldn't have something like deposit insurance. Why? Well, because um, deposit insurance is a guarantee and it's it 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 it. it absorbs the risk that the participants in a financial contract or a financial transaction should be making. And so if you have deposit insurance, well, that's not really, that can't really be Islamic because uh, according to Islam, there's this doctrine, Al-Gorm bin Ghanim. And basically what that means is only through risk, reward only comes through taking risk. And the way that gets interpreted is profit is only morally justified if someone undertakes a risk in trying to earn it. And so if you get some and so that's the rationale against interest, because there's no risk taken. It's a guaranteed payment. Um, you know, the 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 lender always collateralizes the risk and they don't you know, the, so that the, so they would argue that the interest prohibition is actually fundamentally about that. And that what Allah was saying uh, when the Quran was revealed was, you know, um, in fact, uh, people should be risk taking. They should take risk. And so where these Islamic financiers and neoliberals find common cause is around the, the, the risk taking subject, right? Around the risk taking subject that gets valorized as the, the, uh, subject who is appropriate to capitalism. And, you know, they would say, well, you know, look, it's clear that conventional finance doesn't work that way, that risks are hedged, that elites are always um, manipulating the system 
to benefit themselves and cover their own risk and, and undertake what uh, one of my interlocutors called risk shifting rather than um, um, risk sharing. So they would shift the risk. So Goldman Sachs, you know, is the middleman in all these was the middleman in all these um, mortgage backed securities and credit default swaps and collateralized debt obligations that were really um, issued during the financial crisis. Well, they got off scot-free because they just collected the fees and brokered the transactions, but they never absorbed any of the risk in, in, in the deals. Right. And at the end of the day, it was the American taxpayer who got uh, left holding the bag. And so that was something that really interested me was that, you know, um, uh, this guy Hamza, he said, well, actually, you know, uh, Milton Friedman was the original Islamic banker. (laughs) Because he recognized that what makes risk, uh, what makes profit morally justified is risk taking. And that a proper economic system should be one that um, encourages subjects, economic subjects, to participate in these kind of entrepreneurial risk taking activities. So that was something that actually quite shocked me, quite surprised me, you know, was that it wasn't. You know, they didn't see many of them. I won't say all of them, but many of them didn't see it as counterposed to neoliberalism. But they thought saw Islamic finance as the authentic form of neoliberalism, whereas you know conventional finance was some totally corrupted, um, um, uh, backward uh, form of finance in which elites and big institutions rigged the system so that they never absorbed any of the risk, you know, they, 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 they took advantage of all the upside and none of the downside of risk. I really liked how you wrote in the chapter that you were picturing as he was saying this, how you were going to have to then sit down and read all the fine print, all the stuff about uh, insurance, etc. when you sign up for a bank account or whatever it is, and your heart kind of sank thinking about <laughs> having to actually sit there and be an awake and uh, sort of risk-taking subject in the capitalist system. And I was right there with you. I, I thought to myself, oh, God, <laughs> I like to read, yeah. but I don't like to read that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it, 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 you know, this is kind of one of the things that, I mean, I think there was a little bit of, of enthusiasm. These guys were very enthusiastic. They had spent all their lives in banking and finance, and, you know, they knew it back and forth. But they recognize that most people didn't understand it and didn't particularly care about it. They wanted the deposit insurance because they wanted the security that, you know, the dollar or the ringgit that they put into the bank would be there the next day when they woke up in the morning and, and went to take it out. Um, and they said, oh, no, no, no. When we get this Islamic system in place, people are going to have to be really on top of things. They're going to be have to be going, you know, reading the statement, their financial statements of all their financial institutions to see what the institutions are investing their their money in and see if those are good, good uh, decisions. I mean, you know, I think as you suggest, you know, who has the time for that? Uh, not not many of us have the time for that. Um, but I think there, you know, that there was a certain amount of naivete about that. But there is a certain amount of sincerity and about the fact that, you know, well, if people really want to change the system, they have to participate in it because they can't just, I mean, one thing that recent history has definitely demonstrated is that we cannot simply rely on, uh, on others to 
uh, watch it for us because we have no guarantee that they are going to do it properly or do it correctly or, or do it in ways that don't lead to massive financial crises. So I think there is a kind of plea here. Now, I mean, I think there's other ways one could take this. I mean, maybe the problem isn't, you know, everyone becoming a, a financial expert, uh, although that's, you know, that was the the uh, desire of a certain certain constituency of, of the people that were involved in Islamic finance. I mean, I think that, you know, part of the problem is scale. And they, they, they weren't particularly interested in that. They, they, they thought that, that what was needed was a large scale financial network, uh, that would rival, um, Islamic financial network that would rival the conventional financial network. So instead of having this kind of global economy centered on, uh, global financial economy centered on New York, London, uh, Tokyo, Hong Kong, uh, Singapore, you would have one centered on Kuala Lumpur, Dubai, Manama, and Istanbul. Um, and so, you know, there was a kind of feeling that, you know, contemporary capitalism was too complex and, and needed some kind of massive financial infrastructure, but the existing one wasn't necessarily trustworthy. I wanted to return to the book as a whole. One of the things that is is really, I think, a welcome intervention is that you do manage to gather scholars from many places and not just scholars who do their anthropological fieldwork in many places, but in fact, who are also working and actively teaching in many places. When you came around the table, as it were, did you find that you were approaching your studies in similar ways? Were there significant differences in some of the approaches and conclusions? Uh, yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the things that I was most attracted to this project about was that, you know, we had a, a sizable uh, constituency participating uh, of people from the global south. So scholars based in Indonesia based in Sri Lanka, several scholars based in India who were actually involved in, in this conversation. Uh, and that's pretty rare. I mean, I, I realized it's, it's, it's an undertaking, but uh, you don't see a lot of volumes that have such a sizable participation of people from the Global South who are contributing uh, along with people based, based, you know, the usual suspects, as it were. Um, now, that said... You know, everyone uh, was still educated or had their PhDs, I should say, or, or their, their their graduate degrees from uh, either European or, or North American institutions. So, I mean, I, I don't want to go too far on that because I think there's an, another um, question there. And, of course, everyone was writing in English. Um, so there's another kind of, um, you know, <laughs> way in which that short circuits the, the global nature of this. Uh, project. But as far as, as kind of a common vocabulary, um, I, I think, you know, many people were reading many of the same texts. I don't think they were necessarily approaching things from necessarily the same theoretical angles, but there was certainly a, a great deal of overlap uh, among the scholars in terms of the texts that we were reading, the uh, projects that with which we were engaging. Um, and so, and, and, you know, I think a kind of familiarity with classic social theory, 
around the relationship between religion and capitalism going back to, you know, Weber and, and Marx. So I, I, I didn't, I, I got the sense that, you know, we were all in some sense, uh, maybe not approaching things from the same way, or, or we, we didn't necessarily share the same theoretical commitments uh, universally, but we did uh, have a common canon or a common vocabulary uh, with which we could address the problem. And I think what people really appreciated was, as I said at the beginning, trying to approach religion in a way that didn't just reduce it to mystification or false consciousness or the opiate of the masses uh, or the, you know, the refuge for the repressed in a, in a collapsing world, you know, that actually recognized or tried to take seriously the engagements that people made with various forms of religious practice and tried to mobilize those as resources for addressing the problems that they confront in the present. When you think in more specific terms about the chapters, are there any that really fit together, speak to each other in ways that you found particularly surprising or generative? Well, one of the chapters that was one of my favorites was uh, Nandini Guptu, uh, who does fieldwork in India and has done a bunch of research on these uh, corporate officers who are plumbing kind of traditional Hindu epics for lessons about labor discipline, self-management, individual responsibility, and so forth. Uh, and I think her approach really resonated with that of uh, Hilman Latif, uh, who works in Indonesia and looked at the kind of ways in which Islam was being mobilized to create, to, to transform young rural Indonesian women into these laboring subjects capable of undertaking transnational domestic labor. Uh, and those two also resonated, I think, really nicely with Sanjay Srivastva's chapter, who identified a, a, a phenomenon very similar to that in Nandini's chapter about the way in which these kind of private educational institutions uh, are draw are kind of drawing on this, this broader uh, reinterpretation of Hinduism as something that can uh, be conducive to success, to economic success in the context of India's um, uh, commercial boom. Uh, so I think those three chapters were three that really jumped to mind as, as resonating quite nicely with, with one another. Uh, there's also a kind of uh, nice conversation around charity. And the morality of charity and really thinking critically of, around the morality of charity. So in, in Latif's contribution, he's looking at um, uh, these kind of charitable people that are donating money and time to, su to support, to make these women enable, uh, to, to enable these women to, 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 to undertake this, this training program. And Filippo Sella is working on this kind of question of charity as well, but rethinking it, not in Mosian terms, not in the kind of, or, or really Durkheimian terms, you know, as 
you know, the, the function of charity is to ensure social solidarity in the context of economic forces that threaten to break it apart. But Osella kind of reformulates it and say, well, actually, if you talk to these people, they're not really, they're not really, you know, their own justifications for why they're involved in these charitable activities is not so much about, you know, preserving social cohesion, but really about their own individual self-formation and convincing themselves that they are um, adequately pious Muslims by giving zakat, uh, alms, and that this is a way in which they try to form themselves, right? That they, they form themselves as pious Muslim subjects. And so they're not really doing it out of some sense of social obligation or some, you know, Mosian notion of reciprocity or, or, or whatnot, but really through a much more individ, individualistic um, and, and kind of, in a way, self-obsessed way, you know, that resonates with kind of work on, for example, new age uh, spirituality, right? That becomes about uh, individual self-fulfillment and indivi uh, individual uh, uh, ethical uh, self-formation and so forth. That's nice because it resonates, I think, with something that you argue in the introduction about how certain of the core principles of neoliberalism, for example, uh, certain forms of subjectivity, individual autonomy, etc., that these actually might have acquired broad ethical and aesthetic value in society at large. And I think that the example that you're giving right now is a nice reflection of, of that point. I did want to end by asking you a little bit to reflect on your own subjecthood. No, to ask you what you're working on right now. Um, what you mentioned briefly, the book that you're working on. Uh, what is that? Uh, tell us a little bit about what projects you're involved in. Sure. Um, but I just want to riff on something you said for a moment. Can, mm. can we come back to that? Yes, we absolutely can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I think, you know, um, the, another chapter that's really interesting is is Ben Suarez chapter. This just kind of popped into my head. But he's writing about uh, these sort of pay-for-service uh, religious practitioners in Mali, uh, in uh, West Africa, um, who are kind of, you know, out there selling religious services to people on the market at precisely the same moment that Mali is being subjected to these kind of uh, developmental imperatives um, uh, at the behest of the, or, or neoliberal imperatives at the behest of the IMF and the World Bank, right? And so I think the interesting point there is this, is, is the way in which development itself, and one of the things I think he's pointing to is the way in which development itself is fundamentally changing. I think actually this is a bit in my chapter as well uh, to talk about these resonances as, as uh, in the text. So if you think about development, in the heyday of the era of development, the 50s to the 70s, broadly speaking, it was really an avowedly secular project, right? Development was virtually synonymous with modernity, which was in turn virtually synonymous with secularism, right? And this was true not just in kind of uh, first world development initiatives like the American developmentalism of the point four program and, and the Truman um, era, but also uh, Soviet overseas technical assistance. Right. But there's something that's really interesting that that Suarez chapter points to. And that's that in the last two to three decades. There's been this 
really radical shift. And no one really thinks that becoming better off economically at the scale of the individual or the community or the population necessarily means becoming less religious, right? In the heyday of development, that might have made sense, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, but today, no one really, you know, sees development as isomorphism, isomorphic with um, uh, modernity and secularism, right? Uh, and so this split has really been radically deconstructed in, in a certain way. And one of the things that I think we try to draw attention to collectively in the volume is that precisely the opposite is taking place, right? That in, in fact, enhanced religious piety is seen as being as the key to being better off. You see that in a number of chapters in, you know, the uh, uh, several of the Indian chapters in Latif's Indonesian work in, um, uh, the case of uh, uh, Osella is dealing with uh, Suarez contribution, right? So one of the things that the kind of cult economy, Marxian fetishist literature, I think, lost was the way in which religion can offer these resources that are conducive to self-discipline, to accountability, and ultimately to economic rationalization. Great. I'm glad my, my comment provoked something. <laughs> Excellent. <Yeah. laughs> um, so let's get back to what you're working on now. Uh, maybe give sure. us a sort of a really quick sense of what you're doing. I assume probably not editing another volume, at least not quite yet. What other stuff are you up to? Yeah, so I'm really in the process right now of finishing uh, a book on the uh, Malaysia and the globalization of Islamic finance. Uh, and the title of it is Beyond Debt, um, Islamic Experiments in Global Finance. I hope that's out. Uh, it's looking like late 2018, early 2019 now. And um, the kind of what I'm doing in the project is really trying to engage with a lot of the current anthropological literature on debt in such a way that says, look, you know, we know that debt's a problem. But if you look at this literature, there's really no antidote to debt. <laughs> there's no there's no substitute for it. Right. So, I mean, if you look at David Graeber's work, for example, he he you know writes this kind of very well researched, exquisitely documented, um, very rigorously footnoted tome on debt and its 5,000 year history. But at the end of the day, he says, well, what's the solution to it? Well, maybe the Jubilee would work, right? Maybe we just need more debt forgiveness, which is fine, except um, it really still uh, remains within the logic of debt itself, right? So you have this kind of cycle of overconsumption, indebtedness, and then default uh, and bankruptcy. Well, what does Graeber's solution offer? Well, it offers uh, forgiveness at the end, right? That you just have a jubilee, you wipe the slates clean, and people move on, which is fine. I mean, that's one way of looking at it, and it has a, 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 certainly has a biblical lineage. But one of the things that's really interesting is that the, one of the things I found doing the fieldwork in, in Malaysia on Islamic finance was that they actually have a very sophisticated, uh, well a thought out uh, solution. And that is, well, we get rid of interest, we get rid of debt, and we 
redesign a whole economy around profit sharing and risk sharing uh, in which, you know, uh, the kind of guarantees that are built into debt that benefit elites and benefit uh, large institutions are eliminated. And everyone becomes a kind of radically risk-bearing subject. And so part of what I'm trying to do in the book is show how there is this empirical solution to the problem of debt that is emergent in these Islamic financial experiments that are taking place, but really isn't well known in outside of you know circles in Malaysia, in the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and, and elsewhere. Right? That that we don't we aren't uh, aware of this. And so I think this is really one of the things that's fascinating about ethnography and what justified me you know, spending all this time over in Malaysia was actually finding, hey, there is a solution out here. There is a radical rethinking of the economy uh, and ex a radical experiment in rethinking economy that's underway that people are not aware of. And so part of what my goal in is in the book is to really introduce the ideas, the principles of Islamic finance not in the sense that I think they're going to become policy overnight, but I think they do what anthropology has always done well, which is um, they lead to the, uh, as Paul Rabinow put it in one of those um, writing culture essays, uh, you know, they, they, they lead to greater understanding of the self through the detour of the other. In other words, we can critically reflect on our own financial practices, given this very sophisticated, large-scale uh, financial experiment that's taking place um, on the other side of the earth from Europe and North America. Sounds fascinating. Thank you so much. And on that note, uh, I think that uh, I have to bid you goodbye uh, for the night. We're, we're three hours apart right now, so it's almost midnight my time. Um, but I enjoyed every moment of it, and I'm sitting on the edge of my seat for the book when it comes out in late 2018 or early 2019. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. You're welcome. And thank you so much for your interest in the project. I, the time flew for me as well. <laughs> <laughs>